Christ. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for forty days and forty nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He said and replied, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, made him stand on the parapet of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. <coughs> Jesus answered him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to him, all these I shall give to you, if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. What is most real? For you. In quiet moments, sitting in your chair at home, or driving, but a place you go all the time, so you're not really having to look at signs and think about it. At night, when you lie in bed, but before yet falling asleep. The thoughts that run, sometimes race, or at least the way your mind wanders when nothing else is occupying it, what is most real to you? For most of us, pretty much of the time, our lives are full of things that are not especially real, or at least not especially present, right? There's stuff we got to do because we got to do them. We often do it kind of half thinking in the morning or, or, or busying about the day, but, but they're not what drives us. They're not what gets us up in the morning. They're not what keeps us awake at night. 
Every year, the church asks us to sort of strip down outside and inside to confront, to face up to what's really real. And if what we find there is anything less than God himself, then we need to get rid of it. It's really that kind of simple. If what is most present, most real, most driving for our character is anything less than God himself, then it is not serving us. I know we know this story of the temptation in the desert, but please listen to it again. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. It's probably unfortunate that the, the word the translator chose here was led. It's more forceful than that. It's like driven, forced. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert. Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming. He was moved because what was most real for Jesus all the time was his Father. And so when the Spirit stirred, he charged. And he went out into the desert. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Language is going to begin to fail us here almost right away. You might remember, I don't know, three or four years ago, the Pope went on kind of a nut. He got real obsessed about the translation around the Our Father. And in, in Spanish and Italian, the word that gets used for temptation here is harder. So there's a, there's a kind of a reason, but it was sort of weird that he got fixed on it. But his idea was not wrong. God doesn't tempt us, right? So God doesn't say... Don't eat that fruit. Here's the fruit. Here's the fruit. That's not the way this works, right? So, so, but it is the case that in the world that we live in, we are to be tempted. We absolutely will be tempted. And while God doesn't force the temptation, he uses it to build up our character. It's the reason the the kind of games Eve plays in the first reading are so problematic. Listen to how she handles this very first sin. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals, and the serpent asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? So the devil, right at the, the serpent, who is representative of the devil, don't believe the modernists that are trying to tell you something else, Nobody ever thought this was anything but the devil, and Jews didn't believe snakes could talk. The serpent says, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? He's trying to make God unreasonable. He's trying to make God's uh, command seem undoable, like, like impossible. And the woman answers, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. It is only of the fruit of the tree in the middle that God said you can't eat, lest you die. So the woman initially gives a straight report back to the tempter, but then the serpent says, oh baby, you're not going to die. God's just jealous. If you eat, you'll be like him, and then he won't have any power over you. He plays to her her ego, her sense of self-importance, of self-aggrandizement. He makes her think she can be better than she is, and she falls for it. Hook, line, and sinker. So, 
The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, desirable for gaining wisdom, so she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then, and this is how sin works, it's not good enough for me to mess my own life up. What do I got to do? I got to spread the wealth. Mess somebody else's life up too. And probably the people most important to me. This is sort of the obtuseness of sin. It's very difficult at times to get our hands on, our, our arms around, but it is absolutely real and palpable. You can almost smell it or taste it before you can touch it. And then, like a virus, it infects everything that it touches. Well, Jesus presents us a kind of remedy for this sort of sin. And this is really, really important, right? The books of the Bible were not written in order, and they weren't even placed entirely in a precise order. There's a whole lot in the middle that you could probably swip and swap, and it wouldn't matter. But the first sin and the last sin, yeah, those are, those are there for a reason. Genesis, of course, recounting our beginnings, and Revelation looking toward our end. And the authors, both of the Gospels and of uh, the rest of the New Testament, had an understanding of this. And so they wanted us to see the golden thread running through God's plan here. We lived in a garden, in a paradise, and when we fell, we were driven out into the desert. Jesus runs out into the desert so that he can drag us back into paradise. You see what's happening here? Eve and Adam eat from the fruit of the tree. They eat what they know they're not supposed to. Jesus deliberately doesn't eat or drink for a month and a half just to show us we don't have to be ruled by our passions. We don't have to be governed by our basest desires. We don't, we really don't have to give in. Father Nick teases me all the time because of the dog. The dog can't not eat. He will do anything for a treat. If he had more abilities, he would do lots of sins for treats. He doesn't have the ability to say no to himself. Hear that again. He doesn't have the ability, he lacks the innate capacity to say no to his own desires. You know who doesn't lack that capacity? Everyone sitting in this church. Every single one of us has the ability to say yes or no to themselves, to other people, and ultimately to God himself. And that's the reason every year the church trains us for this marathon, right? She has us begin to say no to ourselves again. Perhaps at the beginning in little ways. Sweets, booze. Hopefully, as time goes on, in more meaningful ways. The meat, at least once a week. Maybe the meat for the whole week at the end of this. Maybe just a meal a day at the end of this. Or maybe, blood sugar's wonky or whatever, it's not food, but it's some other physical discipline. I look for little ways, right? Putting the seat in the car in just a slightly uncomfortable position. Taking the long way when driving through town. Not sitting in my comfortable chair to read, but maybe in the desk chair or something like that. But just little ways that I could make myself more comfortable, but I say no. No, it's good for me to say no to myself now, 
Because if I can say no in a little way now, I will be able to say no in a big way later. Weight training with your will. Not because you'll be strong enough on your own, but because when you clear out all the gunk, once all the things that aren't necessary aren't there anymore, you'll be faced with what you have, what you really have, what you really, really want. See, that's the reason most of the time we distract ourselves. We don't want to be confronted by what we really, really want, because for many of us, it's pretty ugly. For many of us, our desires have become so warped, we want stuff that's not just not good for us, or, or we want too much of it, or out of order, we actually want things that are bad for us, or bad for other people. We've let a resentment or an old wound fester for years and years and years, and now we no longer can say, at least pro forma, ah, I want the good for her, I just don't really want to see her. No. If we're forced to confront what's going on deep inside, yeah, I want her to suffer the way she made me suffer. I want him to realize how bad he messed up my life. I want that old boss of mine to get what's coming. You see? You see? And it's in there. For most of us, there's something in there that's real ugly. And rather than face it, we distract. Jesus won't. He goes out and he faces the temptation head on. The temptation for food, the temptation for honor, the temptation for power and self-aggrandizement, the temptation to take God's own place. And that, friends, that is the great sin of our first parents. It has very little to do with fruit and everything to do with relationship. I'm going to tell you the hardest truth anyone will have ever said to you. You're not God. You're not. Your opinions are not the most important thing in the world. Your feelings don't even matter as much as you like to pretend to. Mine don't either. That's why we're here. And because we're not God, we can't reach and grasp and try and obtain that which isn't ours. We'll be forever frustrated, like a, like a child in his dad's shoes trying to be a grown-up and tripping all over himself. That's what we look like when we, when we reach for this godness. It's not something that we can gain or attain or work towards. So if you're playing your lens out like you're in charge of it, if it's you who've taken yourself on a trip to the desert rather than been driven out there by the Spirit himself, then you will be tempted, but you're going to fail. And you're going to fail because you're just not strong enough. Nobody is. That's the whole point. But if you go out and try and strip away what's unnecessary, if you do commit yourself to real discipline, not because you're the strongest person in the world or you can will yourself to strength, but because when you clear out what's unnecessary, then the grace that's been beating at the door can finally begin to seep into your soul, then, then, then you can touch Godhood. You can hold him in your hand, bear him in your mouth and in your breast, in the deepest, innermost recesses of your soul and even your body. Then Godhood can be in you, and then you will have a share. 
in that thing which our first parents grasped at but could never attain, that which is most real, what matters most, the life of God himself, revealed in Christ Jesus most perfectly on the cross.